The Australian economy seemed to be in such good shape after we emerged from lockdowns and then a bunch of external factors affecting global supply chains combined with all that extra cash in our pockets to create, suddenly it seems, an inflation problem. Central banks across the world have responded to rising inflation by increasing interest rates and our very own RBA was a little later than many in starting the rate hike cycle, try saying that quickly, here in Australia and there's been plenty of debate in economic circles over whether they waited too long. And now the debate is shifting to whether interest rates are in fact the most effective tool for controlling inflation. Is it possible that the tried and true ways of managing the economy have actually stopped working? Welcome to the elephant in the room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Award. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. Today, we've invited economist Warren Hogan back to the podcast to help us understanding the current state of the economy. When we first spoke to Warren back in episode 75, if you can believe it, in 2019, Interest rates were falling and there was talk about a recession. Now rates are rising and the spectre of a recession is rising again, albeit for different reasons. Now Warren has an extensive background in banking and treasury and since we last spoke to him in early 2021, he's been awarded an honorary doctorate from UTS Business School in recognition of his contribution to Australian economics and his work on the economic impacts of the pandemic. And last year, he's also set up a property research facility, shall we call it, for Halo Technologies, an Australian listed equities, analytics and execution platform. And he's now producing analysis and forecasts for Australia's residential property markets. So it's really good to see you again, Warren. What's been happening since we last spoke? I really appreciate your time. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. Since uh, looking forward to it. Warren, I'm uh, pumped to chat to you again. Um, you know, always found the last two chats super enlightening and um, learned a lot. And I've been seeing your name pop up a bit, you know, as you, your name gets around in lots of different press, et cetera. And I've just seen your stance being a little bit different um, and a little bit more, um, I guess, forceful, a bit more hawkish, maybe a little bit more like the RBA statement this this last month, right? Um, have you felt like that? You've been a little bit out there by yourself when everyone else has been playing the safe lane and, um, you know, probably taking the more like what, what people thought was the general consensus rather than what you were seeing. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's right. I mean, I had my four and a half percent cash rate forecast back in August, where I think the consensus was something like three point one, which we've already gone through. So I did feel a little bit out there, um, but that's not an unfamiliar territory for me because I'm not too scared of being away from consensus. In fact, as a financial market strategist, a bond strategist for many years, the one thing I knew for sure was when everyone agreed on something that's going to happen in the future, that's what wasn't going to happen. So. Well, very uncomfortable when I'm near the consensus. I mean, I, I did actually say to someone just recently that my view of a 4.5% cash rate six months ago was my moderate view. I mean, I still think there's a risk that we can go to 5 or 6, which of course is disaster time. And I hope it doesn't happen, of course, but I obviously didn't push that too hard when I was already sort of well above market. But yep, the market's come to us as we're speaking. The money markets are pricing in a 4.3% cash rate, and I've actually revised mine down to 435 just because, you know, they're obviously not going to go back to 25 bond increments anytime soon. And yeah, 
Don't, it's just been my reading of the economy, not a real forecast thing. I just think every other economist underestimated how much strength's in this economy. And I think the developments in the property market in the month of February highlight that. People with jobs, interest rates of 5 to 6% aren't too bad for people who want a house. And so they're back in there. And uh, yeah, okay. I, I think that's a problem we've got, though, because we have got this inflation. I mean, that's a really interesting point you said there around um, no one really, I guess, respected the amount of stimulus, the amount of built up demand plus the problems with supply um were you expecting you know last year to happen because if we started in 2021 like 2022 is the year that bang you know the rates happened that weren't meant to happen in 2024 if you believed that but yeah were you expecting that to happen last year or did it catch you off guard a little bit just how ferocious i guess the 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 increase in inflation was around the world yeah the inflation trajectory really did shocked me at one stage um and we were seeing it out of the u.s particularly early and uh that was back when the rba was making not just the heinous crime of telling us rates were going to stay where they were till 2024 but also trying to tell us if you recall a year ago that australia was different to the rest of the world and that we didn't have the energy shock that we didn't have the wage story well we do have now it's just we're lagging Look, the economy, um, go back to November 2020 when we knew actually once we came out of lockdowns, we bounced back, that we actually are a much more sophisticated society than a lot of people give us credit for. And we did the right thing. But then once we could go out and spend, we did. And, and although we went back into lockdown in uh, the Delta lockdowns for New South Wales and Victoria, but there was evidence all the way from the late 2020 that this was not going to cause a major problem in our economy. And then, of course, you just look at the magnitude of the stimulus. I mean, local governments were providing stimulus, let alone state feds. I mean, everyone was in on it. It was throw the kitchen sink time. The RBA did QE, which they've been arguing for years they didn't want to do. Then, you know, the problem is that we still don't know how bad this could get in terms of inflation. Let's cross our fingers that it's starting to come out and it'll continue to, but there's just a massive amount of, it's just a massive balance sheet shift from the public sector to the private sector. And that balance sheet capacity is, is showing up now and everything from consumer spending to businesses hiring. So it's a, it's a strong economy out there. It's, it's slowing down now because of these rate hikes and it will continue to, but it has to. We have to slow this economy down. We're actually in the process of, of researching our full forecaster report for 2023. And if, if you've ever read it, Warren, I think you're going to make an entry in this one. Uh, we're actually looking at the forecast for interest rate rises, but also for property prices um, and reviewing 2022, what was forecast versus what will happen. And actually in doing that, I was quite surprised to see that the RBA was still as, as late as February 2022, was still encouraging really encouraging buyers to be confident that rates were going to stay low till 2024. I mean, that they, they started, the rhetoric, the words changed a little bit, but they never actually said, oh, that won't happen. And yeah, I was actually really astounded because even in my in my memory, I had locked into 2021, they stopped, but they didn't. They kept yeah. right up almost yeah. to the wire, didn't they? They started to soften the language, but this is the other problem with the central bank giving a public, strong public forecast. And, you know, people in markets, in, you know, traders, money managers, economists, we all learn something early in our careers that is you, you don't fall in love with your view, you know, because you go out there with a strong view and then you just fall in love with it. And what it creates is stickiness. You don't change it till it's well beyond obvious you need to change it. And central banks have known that. These guys didn't. They don't have that experience. And they that, that three months between, as you said, it ended in about February, 
uh, 22 and started, I think, in late November 21 or December 21, where it was obvious what was going on. And they just didn't have the, they just got stuck. And it's really sad. But yeah, they're going to pay a huge price. They're all going to go. They're all going to lose their job. The RBA is going to be fundamentally changed. Um, so they're going to pay a very high price for that. Warren, I mean, I guess what, what did people get it wrong in the last six months? You know, because if you look at the markets, right, they were pricing higher rates, you know, August, September, it was a real freak out moment. Um, then they really came back, you know, the late, you know, the, the expectations, which you spoke about early on in the podcast that, you know, the market was saying 3.5. Now it's gone back up to, to 4.3. Um, what did they get wrong? But now they're realizing around the inflation story that, that the market is going to take a while. This is going to be stubborn. It's going to stay high for longer or... You know, that's we're going to get wage inflation. What are we? What are we not getting that we've now finally realised? Well, I think the, the the main narrative that caused the banks and others to be very cautious in their views on how far rates needed to go was this uh, idea that the rate hikes were going to knock all these um, mortgages out and 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 tumble the economy into recession. And CBA was leading the way. They constantly were saying the RBA shouldn't go beyond one point nine, and then two point one, and then. And yeah, the other banks weren't much different, but CBA had it as the biggest book, right? And you know, people listened to them. What they missed, though, is that, sure, in a market, whether it's a bond market, a currency market, a equity or a property market, the marginal player matters because that's what determines the price. But in an economy, it's the bulk, it's the median that matters. And of course, We've got this environment, not because of what's happening with rates necessarily now, but because we had them so low in the pandemic, where we're knocking out a bunch of people who borrowed rates at levels that they probably should have never got to in hindsight, right? They were so far below the long-term average, which now we've having, having to, the RBA is having to correct, r- raise rates very quickly, and there is marginal distress. So we're seeing a lot of distress. I'm actually surprised that the bank numbers show so little arrears. It's going to rise. We all hear the stories of people who are right on the edge. And, you know, Australians do actually pay their mortgage until the last, you know, bowl of rice is eaten and then they can't afford anything but. But there is actually a whole bunch of people in the economy, 90% of them, and most businesses which had a 3% cash rate or a 5 or 6% business rate or mortgage rate are fine. In fact, they're probably fine at another 1% or 2% above this. It's just that marginal player which is in distress and that's what they focus too much on because we're seeing now in places like the United States and New Zealand how much momentum these economies have got. And we got a hint of it in the latest national accounts, which you know are for the final quarter of last year, but still they're the latest we've got. That you know, household savings are dipping. Uh, because they put up all these savings, they're they they're they're eating into them like yeah. they have been in the US and New Zealand. So I think the general theme to answer your question after that long explanation is economists have underestimated how resilient people are, how resilient businesses are. And Yeah, and I find that fascinating too because even just digging into the numbers as, as to those more vulnerable um, home purchases, obviously the, the last in, you know, borrowing the highest multiple of earnings, uh, the highest mortgage, uh, loan to value ratio, all that sort of stuff. And if you look at, you know, there's almost 11 million properties out there and roughly 600,000 changes hands every year. So so maybe 1.2 million. So that's roughly 10%, right? So would you say that that is the sort of numbers we're talking about at the margins or was is it less than that? It's less than that because, you know, there's a lot of people who transacted who realised that this, you know, the RBA might have said, 2024, but there's people like me who never believed them. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of Australians who were smart, who were experienced, who never believed them. 
The sad thing is the people who believe them are those who are inexperienced, typically younger, or don't necessarily have the capability to you know, overcome a big mistake like this. But yeah, the number's got to be lower. Um, I'm hearing everything from, you know, tens of thousands to 300,000. It, it's, it's, we don't know. If you look at the bank's results that came through in February um, for the final quarter of last year, or the first half, the final half of last year, they, they've got record low arrears on their mortgage books. So, you know, I just saw some stuff from Ilion and their, their numbers are only just creaking, creeping higher in terms of, you know, counts overdue and stuff and that's more generally not just mortgages so yeah look the numbers will be lower and the fact is i think if we try and guess those numbers it's 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 an impossible game you've got to look at the consequences and you know from the rba's point of view the solid results for the australian property market in the month of february are bad news because it shows you that maybe rates have to go even higher so i think veronica makes a really good point and we have the interest rate conversation is that, you know, basically you're not affecting everyone in the economy, right? The retirees um, are benefiting from higher interest rates when they've got money in cash and things like that. And your point really around the resilience of the um, the borrower at higher rates, I think a lot of people, you know, do think this fixed rate cliff and, you know, it's going to be this Armageddon situation where everyone can't afford their mortgages. And I think you can see, you know, with retail spending and things like that, people are still out there enjoying their lives. You know, they're not saying I can't handle these high rates, which the, that was the rhetoric last year that would have these high rates of interest rates and everyone would cut their spending back. And that's maybe not what's happening. So we've got to go even higher to force people to really slow down. Um, I think the banks have already came out last week. Um, um, I think uh, NAB, Westpac and CEO, uh, CBA both said that they would do all sorts of things for that one percent or that ten percent that you're and talking that's about exactly right um so they're going to get enormous support APRA are going to allow the banks to do it you know extending loan terms interest only no repayments if they can generally say that you know maybe they're looking for another job or you know like that so this sort of armageddon and the marginal buy thing's an interesting thing um you know chris joy's very out there at the moment um you know talking about this fixed race cliff and this is going to lead to further house prices but then when you look at the house the results recently it's all coming back to that marginal buyer, right? Much lower listings and enough buyers out there willing to, to buy at these prices. And so that's why you're getting support. Is that sort of your take on the market broadly where, you know, people are starting to realize that cut back in listings plus enough buyers out there is starting to support certain markets, not everywhere, but that's what we're saying. I think so. Yeah. And I, I think your point about um, the banks, the, the probably the, the, the banks are going to take some responsibility. I know the RBA said certain things and APRA has their buffers, but in the end, the banks are the ones lending our money that we deposit with them to these people. They've got to take some responsibility. And if they end up lending to marginal players at a zero cash rate or a 2% mortgage rate, and suddenly that turns around, well, maybe they need to take some responsibility. So I think the hardship piece will be a big part of what's happening right here. Um, and then, yeah, in terms of the market, um, I think we're seeing some people who have been realized, well, wait a minute, maybe this doesn't work for me getting out, but we're not seeing genuine forced selling. The banks won't create forced selling because that just undermines their whole book. Um, but I do think, I think we might get a bit of a bounce in the housing market through autumn. It won't be spectacular, but it'll stop this run of 1% declines every month that we've had through the back half of last year. Then I do. I mean, the end game of all of this. Remember, the ultimate goal of all of this is to get rid of the inflation. The inflation is what's putting misery into the economy. That's what's killing 
low-income earners or retirees who've got no flexibility with their income, their cost of living is going up. This is the this is the thing that's got to be dealt with, and it's all about what level of interest rates, how slow does the economy have to be to take that inflation risk out, and we only we don't know. We're gonna it's gonna take the whole year, but I suspect it's gonna need to see some a significant enough slowdown that we're going to see some job losses and then that's when we'll start to see a bit more fireworks in the housing market in the back half of the year. So I think you're right in the short term, but I still think there's another wave of distress. And that's that's on that view that the cash rate gets up to, you know, four, four and a half in May, then they pause. And, you know, let's all cross our fingers that's going to do the job. Uh, but even then, I think you're going to see a bit of a nasty combination of the filtering through, the, the post-mortgage clear filtering through uh, to people's variable rates, and then, of course, some some softness in the labour market. So a couple of things there. One is that we're recording this on the 1st of March. We'll go to air in a few weeks. Um, and you're probably re- referring to CoreLogic data. They come out with a hedonic index every month. And it actually showed a very, very small increase in dwelling values in Sydney, uh, 0.3, and that's the first one since, I think, January last year. Um, So that was the peak of the Sydney cycle. And every other market is in negative, but that rate of decline has been slowing markedly for um, for most of them, although it just picked up for Adelaide and Brisbane, didn't it? But anyway, so overall, though... My bar's not looking too good. No. (laughs) So overall, you could have a whole episode on that one. Overall, the rate of decline is slower, but also just seeing some some green shoots in Sydney and people could get very excited with that and run off with that. But the reality is, I know, being on the ground in Sydney, that's, that February is typically the strongest month, often, purely because you've got more buyers and sellers. And that is just a function of Christmas and the slowdown and being an auction, uh, a largely auction-oriented market. So that's sort of what we're talking about here, if anyone hasn't noticed those that data. And interestingly enough, at the beginning of February, when CoreLogic released their data for January, which showed price falls across the board, there was very negative headlines around the property market. At the same time, we were seeing record numbers at open houses and some crazy activity, which we've, you know, a month later, we're seeing that, that evidenced in, in this data. But will that survive or will that just dissipate as more listings come on the market? I guess that's probably my, my thoughts. But in terms, back to the interest rate question, you know, we're saying, oh, they've got to go up, they've got to go up because a big chunk of our economy, like you're saying that the, the, the big middle of our economy is not impacted or has not been impacted by the sharpest run of interest rate rises in, well, in history or certainly in decades. So will interest rates really bite at some point, but given that they really do impact uh, the margins you know, much more than they they impact the rest of the economy or the rest of the players in the economy, surely there must be other tools that the RBA or our governments could utilise? Or is it really, truly, that's the only one? Oh, no, there's heaps of other tools. It's just that politicians control them and they're hopeless. Um, In fact, you know, we've got a federal treasurer who's willing to pat himself on the back because he's not pumping more money into the economy, i.e. spending the boom from the commodity prices that he's had over the last little while. But the real hidden one that no one's talking about is the states. You know, between Dan Andrews and Dom Perrottet, they're investing and throwing money at this economy like there's no tomorrow. And that is just creating so much inflation pressure. And that is putting all the pressure on the RBA now, if the federal treasurer wanted to take responsibility for fiscal policy, he'd actually start cutting the public service. And funnily enough, with such big labour shortages 
throughout the economy, it wouldn't be a bad time to maybe trim the public service because they'd be able to get jobs elsewhere. But no, this is a government that won't do that. And of course, the states that just have no political opprobrium for overheating the economy, they don't bear the, the political consequences of that. And obviously, they don't care about anything but getting re-elected. It's quite disgusting, actually, what's going on in Victoria. Um, so yeah, the RBA is left to carry the can, and 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 obviously they're they're not just carrying the can in terms of having to raise rates and 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 conduct policy, but you know this government will not want any association politically with these rate hikes, so they've been thrown to the mob as well. So you know you've got the media ripping them apart, and and it's actually skewed the economic narrative in this country like I've never seen before. I mean, we've had the narrative basically we're about to topple into recession, going for six months. The RBA pivoted early to 25-point hikes from 50-point hikes, I think partly due to that pressure. That pressure is partly self-inflicted because they screwed up so much in the pandemic. We've got a, an interest rate of 3.35% here in early March. It might be 3.6 next week, mid-March. Um, the US interest rate's 4.75%. The New Zealand interest rate's 4.75%. The Canadian interest rate's 4.5%. Um, the, that's the biggest gap in history that we've ever seen. We are so far below the rest of the world, it's not funny. So, yeah, look, I mean, the RBA is not only sort of being browbeaten into not hiking quickly enough and putting us at risk of an overheating economy, they're also not being helped by fiscal policy at all. But to get to the point, so let's, that's the political economy of where we lie, and it's, it's sad because we've been so good at managing this economy for the last 30 years, we're now going in completely the opposite direction. But yeah, you can do heaps to help deal with this inflation. Yeah, you could raise the GST for six months by three percentage points. Um, and That'd you know, be fairer, wouldn't it? Well, it wouldn't be fairer, but what you could do is you could do five. Well, it'd be fair in the sense, exactly right. Sorry, fair in the sense that everyone pays for it. Because yeah, everyone should never lose sight of only 38% of Australian households have a mortgage. Yep. Um, and of those, less than half are anywhere near you know, a problem. You know, most people are so far advanced. In fact, I know many people who won't pay off their mortgage because they don't want to hold their mortgage papers. They don't want their banks. But anyway, um, yeah, so if you did the GST by, say, let's call it 5%, but then you used about half that revenue to compensate the the lowest income earners, that would be a much fairer way for sure. But the, we don't have the political capability to do that. Jim Chalmers has just talked about a 30% super tax and he's getting mobbed. You know, um, you know, we're we're really lost our our capacity to be resilient in terms of taking a bit of pain now for future benefit in this and, country. And talk that super attacks as well. I mean, talking about the margins. I mean, isn't that that basically going to impact thirty six thousand people or something? <laughs> it's such a small that have got three million or more in their super balance. I mean, I get that you don't want to muck around tinkering with um, super causes like a lack of trust and all that sort of stuff but at the same time I think that's exactly you don't want to change it I think the other point is that I think the worrying thing with that is though is it's not indexed so you know we keep getting inflation like this then we're all going to oh yes you're right but yeah your point's exactly right and it's not the RBA's fault and the other point about this blunt instrument called interest rates is that's fine to sort of get all worried about it as you're jacking them up and causing distress then but don't use it on the way down there yeah, and this is my argument for over a decade, is that we overused monetary policy all around the world, um, that the interest rates should be used much more sparingly. And what they should be trying to do is always establish what's a neutral or an interest rate that's not going to hurt or hinder the economy, and then only just occasionally deploy it where we need it. But of course, it's it's just interest rates have been lower than they should be for a decade now. And 
And now that the inflation's come, which it was always going to do eventually, they've got to they've got to deal with it, or else you know, you can't remember that if we let inflation get away from us, uh, the cost of getting rid of it um, and the and the damage it does to the economy in the meantime is is nothing we've seen. It's nothing like that was our last recession was getting rid of inflation in the early nineties, and it cost us. There's people who are scarred to this day because of lost businesses, family homes, that sort of thing. So. So what, so what do you think the, the case is, you know, like if you in your mind, your scenarios, like well, scenario one, hopefully if the RBA listens to you, they, they bump it up to sell, right? And that puts the genie back in the bottle, right? And then you, but you know, you just mentioned there the RBA are very blunt, right? So then they're probably just going to cut rates, right? If, if they get it under 3%, they're going to be like, okay, well, party's over. And do you think they're going to be rate cuts? And then, but the worst case scenario is it has to stay at 4.5 or go higher for multiple years and we get a wage price spiral. I mean, you know, I know you work, you do a bit with Judo Bank. I mean, talking to a lot of business owners and into business lending. I mean, a business is starting to say, hang on a sec, let's not go gung ho here on hiring and let's not borrow money. Like for your knowledge, because that'll slow things down. Even if the state government's yeah. not doing it, if people stop hiring and giving pay rises and, um, and people stop asking for pay rises, maybe because they're a bit worried about their job now. Yeah. Do you think we're doing enough? I'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions. And you can find out all about what I'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au. And there you'll find resources for first home buyers, details about my buyer's agent mentoring program, access to suburb help for investors, or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or lower North Shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. If you're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one, or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly, get the finance right. Please reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. We're getting there and we're not there yet. The latest, you know, I do meetings with business leaders, mid-sized companies every week, the last few weeks, all our pressure's still there. You know, um, it's not as, you know, severe or as acute as it was. The reality of the business community, it's not about every business slowing down. It's the fact that we're probably going to have to knock out about 5% of Australian businesses. I lose them. They're zombies. They probably don't have a long-term future anyway, um, and that's where the stress is going to come there. And that releases people working for them to go and work for other businesses that need the labour. But that in itself is a podcast, so I won't dwell on it. <laughs> um, but to your point about the rate hikes, to be very clear, uh, I think that any rate hikes we get from here uh, will be matched by cuts uh, within a, within 12 months. So at the moment, I've got the cash rate getting to 4.35 by, you know, let's call it the end of winter, the start of the spring selling season. That'll really start to get traction. The economy will slow through the middle of 2020, end of 23 and into 24. But then the RBA starts cutting mid-24 and they take it back down to three, something like that where we are now. I think the RBA cash rate will average about 3% over the next five years. That's, I think, a good mind to have. I don't think we're going back to zero. We don't want to go back to zero. That's not the, no, that's not a good place to be. So your mortgage rate will average probably five or six. Now, Fixed rates probably aren't all that attractive right now, maybe right now, but they're going to disappear. The bond yields are going up as we speak. Um, and yeah, there will be that relief. But look, let's hope because, you know, there is this risk factor, which people don't talk about, but it's it's really actually what we've got to avoid. And that's letting inflation get entrenched, that wage price spiral, if you will, 
we haven't it's not happening now and it, it never was going to happen now but if if we don't slow the economy in a timely manner and we do let inflation get entrenched i mean just think about this in the in the the, the u.s federal reserve put the u.s economy into recession in 79 and 81 and that got rid of the inflation we put the economy into recession in 81 82 it didn't get rid of the inflation then we did the financial crisis to end all financial crises or the biggest one of our 20th century in the 19, early 1990s, late 80s, and that got us our cash rate up to 17%. That's the scenario we've got to avoid. That's the interest rate going up to 7 8 9%. And can you imagine, if we're talking about distressing housing at 3% cash rate, imagine what a 7 8 or 9% cash rate would do. It would, it would destroy the economy. So the question I would pose, and I think the governor sort of tried to do this in his parliamentary testimony, is how much are we prepared to pay to insure against that not happening? And if that's one or two 25-point hikes more than we need, I'll take it. Because, I mean, the problem is everyone's looking to just the golden outcome, the miracle outcome, and that's not the way life works. It's risk management. We don't know the future. You've got to, and the other thing is, which I think a lot of people are talking about, is the RBA do have to pause because there's lags. But the judgment of that pause has to be what's the right level. And then this comes back to, I think, your first question, why did I think rates were going to have to go higher than what everyone else said? It's because real interest rates, that's actually what matters to economists. And at the moment, the real interest rate is negative 3 4%. It's miles negative. It's got to get up to 1% or 2 to have any chance of, of slowing the economy down. Now, hopefully, some of that increase in the real interest rate will happen because inflation falls. And we've got an evidence in the monthly number today that that's starting to happen. But it just tells me a 4% cash rates, you know, you, you're not going to get inflation down to 4 for at least a year. So the cash rate has to get to at least 4 if not a bit higher, to, to ensure against this economy continuing to develop the inflation. So. Now, I've never heard the term before, real interest rates. So I love doing this podcast. I get to learn something every time. Can you explain for people like me what that means? Same as real wages. So real wages is what we get paid minus the effect of inflation. So if your wage goes up by... 4% and inflation is um, 8%, uh, which is basically what's happening now, then right. your real wage actually hasn't kept your pace. It's gone back yep. 4%. It's just the one minus the other. So the real- Borrowing power. Uh, so buying power, effectively. Yeah. And it's yeah. the same with interest rates. Um, if an interest rate, let's call the mortgage rate 5%, so take off the inflation rate 8%, well, it's only it's negative 3 Right. And, and economists actually, and me as an economist and all other economists, use the real interest rate to model the economy, but most importantly, to model things like fair value in the housing market. And if you, you, there's absolutely no evidence of an economy getting rid of inflation with a real interest rate, well, below zero for sure, <laughs> and, uh, below 2%. You know, in, in 2008, the last time we had some inflation, the real interest rate went to three. In the late 90s, it was three. In the late 80s, I think it went to four or five. Now, you think about if we needed a three or 4% real interest rate and then add on just say 3% inflation, what's well, a six or 7% cash rate? Now, when you start looking at it in those terms, you start realizing, Jesus, actually, our interest rates are low. And this is where people, again, have missed it. They think about the change, and the change matters because that's people suddenly having to change their behaviour. But for the overall economy, it's the level that matters. And that's a big reason the RBA's changed its tune is that they know that they have to get the rate to a certain level. The thing the RBA were hoping late last year was that the world economy would go into recession. Remember Jim Chalmers coming back from Washington? Oh, my God, the world economy is mm. terrible. And 
the RBA saying it's yep. terrible. Well, when we went on holidays at Christmas and into Australia Day, the US economy stabilised. The European economy didn't go into an energy-induced meltdown. And, of course, China reopened. And suddenly the world <laughs> economy is not the end of the world. And suddenly, oh, my God, we can't, we're not going to get bailed out by a global recession like we in 2008. So I, <laughs> that's part of the reason the RBA was sort of hoping that they wouldn't have to do these big rate hikes. And it's also part of the reason that in February they changed their tune and caught everyone by surprise. I just had a friend visit from London last weekend. Um, you know, I was asking, you know, what he's doing, what's, what's happening over there? What's the, what's the mood like? And, you know, it was, he was saying pretty diabolical still, you know, people are very concerned around energy. They're very concerned around inflation. Um, there's lots of striking going on. There was last year when I visited in the middle of the year and, um, you know, public service and, you know, key worker roles, um, and, you know, so I, we haven't really got that here, right? We haven't got that mass. You know, people are really upset because they can see the inflation is going to be quite sticky and stick around and they're looking at their real wage and they're going, well, interest rates are going up. So maybe that's, you know, a thing that could be down the line for us if we if we do see it to stick up. You're going to see a lot more people, you know, fighting for more wage increases and that's the last thing we'd want right now. Um, Warren, in that scenario <laughs> where rates do go over tight and it's like a car crash, right, you you understeer, then you oversteer, then you understeer, and uh, at some point you crash, right? And I think that's obviously what's happening with rates, right? We understeered, we went too low for too long and kept them down too long. Now we're going to oversteer it. We're going to get, um, if we did manage to pull it off, right, and we, we, we get inflation under control, is there a benefit to our economy just through that couple of years of higher inflation to our government debt, assuming we could go back to pretty lower rates, yeah, because inflation governments have got a lot of debt around the world, right? Post-COVID and even before going into COVID, that inflation eats away at that debt and then we get it back on low long-term bond yields. Could they have just miraculously pulled off a bit of a arbitrage over a couple of years or is that sort of wishful thinking? <laughs> no, no. That's uh, the thinking that some people think is the right way to go about it. And I think ultimately it's going to be the reality, no matter even if you get people like me who really think that inflation is a terrible thing for everyday people uh, rather than just being some economic policy tool that it hurts people um that yeah i think we're going to probably end up averaging four percent inflation in the next five years and that's going to help the government's financial position but that's not going to help <laughs> you know the bottom 30 percent of our society's incomes or our retirees on a fixed income so i think it's the reality but you know the thing is is that even wanting four percent inflation you still got to get rates up and you still got to slow the economy because the risk is not 4%. The risk is 20% because you go back in time and look at all the inflation episodes, they're all 20%, whether it's World War One, World War II, 1970s, the initial shock rarely pulls up after 10%. So uh, yeah, look, I think there's, there's going to be a reality. I think if we can average 3% inflation in the next 10 years, we'll have done a great job. The problem is, is that Jim Chalmers and Anthony Albanese will put more political value on avoiding recession than getting rid of the inflation no matter even though i could try to explain to them that the, the most vulnerable in our society who theoretically are their core constituency at least historically they are um are going to be hurt by this but i think he you know jim chalmers when he worked for wayne swan thought that the greatest they were the greatest thing in the world because they avoided a recession in the gfc when we know that it had nothing to do with the australian government that it was china but anyway yeah china on that though like international students and you know you look at migration numbers um i'm back gonna be a roaring comeback right and um the numbers are higher than they were right um and they've got money and they need to be housed yes and there's an undersupply of 
Sydney and Melbourne apartments are already starting to come through because, you know, that construction boom ended actually five years ago. It wasn't a pandemic thing. That was slowing in 2018. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's. I think this is a real, again, why our economy's risk being too strong, not too weak, where everyone, all the narratives have been about it's weak, it's weak. But it's not the reality, I don't think. I mean, on that point, that if it's if you said look at our economy pre-COVID and post-COVID and how our economic rank, I guess, do you think that Australians in a better place than we were, or do you think that you know because everyone probably had it had issues? Um, so you know, everyone maybe their economies aren't growing as strongly or maybe too strong. But you know, do you think we've we've climbed the ranks or? What people don't understand is why the economy was lacklustre pre-COVID. So there's two features of the seven years before COVID um, that, you know, I think are the most important. One is we were having a hangover in um, many parts of our country from the biggest mining boom in Australia's history and probably one of the biggest mining booms the world's ever seen in terms of deployment of capital. And, you know, you can see that in the WA and Northern Territory propping markets to this yep. day. Uh-huh. Um, so that kept things lackluster. You know, there was just projects rolling off. And then the other one was was the massive shock that was the rise of China and other emerging markets in manufacturing. And that only not only had the effect of keeping prices down for goods, because they're all offering cheap goods into the world, um, it meant that our manufacturing was being offshore. And I did a big study on food and grocery. That was just, it's just manufacturing was grinding down. So if you've got a big chunk of your capital stock being taken overseas, then you're not going to get any business investment. You, know, you can't grow business investment if, if a big chunk of it's falling. So the economy prior to the GFC, uh, prior to the um, pandemic after the GFC, was not you know a star star like performance, but it wasn't as bad. It wasn't some failure of, the, of policy. It was a, it was a hangover. It was a part of the global scene. So I actually think we're in a much worse position now. And the main reason I say that is that real wages in this country today have gone back to where they were in 2010. That is the biggest backward step we've seen in two generations. I mean, one of the hallmarks of modern Australia, the Australia we know, you have to be older than us to know this, <laughs> i.e. older than 50, I'm 50, so you guys are 32. Um, God love you. So modern Australia was built on everyone going up. You know, there's this myth about real wages in the, under the coalition prior to the prior to the pandemic. Well, they didn't; they weren't spectacular, but they're up a percent every year. But the point is, they're going up, and a uh, percent every year means a lot. It's when you take a minus ten percent in three years, which is what we've just seen. That's devastating. So I think you know if what you if, if what you think of an economy is is not just its ability to generate wealth for people, but it is about what the people in that economy experience and what kind of a society runs around it, we're going backwards because, you know, but, you know, I, I don't think it's unsolvable, but I think we have to, the, the big thing that people miss is that interest rates were out of whack when they were low. What we're doing is putting them back into the right spot. And of course that's going to cause pain, but if we yeah. don't take that pain, then we're just going to elong, uh, elongate the misery. So, look, I'm actually very positive on Australia on the next five to, to ten years because we've got everything the world wants, we're smart, and as long as we can get our economy back on that even keel that the governor talks about, which is essentially back to an equilibrium, then we're off to the races again because we've got the natural resources, we've got the smart workforce, we know how to do immigration effectively and handle it from a social point of view. So, I'm very I'm bullish. So, look, I think another 10% fall in property prices, then pin your ears back. They're going up 30% the following 10 years. 
<laughs> we'll quote you the full forecast report. But the big problem with that, particularly with uh, immigration, is this property shortfall, housing shortfall. I mean, that's putting we've huge got, pressure on rents. Yes, huge pressure. We literally just uh, interviewed uh, Leo Patterson from the Tenants Union in uh, New South Wales. So that'll be an interesting chat around that too for you listeners. But, um, you know, and there's no real light at the end of the tunnel either, you know, because there's a shortage of supply and you've got, you've got um, increasing immigration and obviously the student numbers are coming in at, uh, at rapid rate of knots as well. People are living in tents and, and this is not hyperbole here. This is actually, the, this is oh, last night on television, it's it's 12-month uh, anniversary of Lismore floods. Um, I know that there are people still from the bushfires back in the end of 2019, uh, 2020 summer uh, down the south coast still living in tents, still yeah. living in caravans. Yeah. So that that's people displaced by natural disaster, let alone, um, you know, everything else that's been going on. You know, yeah, you, you, and, yeah now, I mean. That's the thing is that then you get these state governments who want to go and build infrastructure, which, you know, that's fine, but build some houses in the meantime. And yeah, the do we do is, What's the disconnect? I mean, like even you're talking about the state governments, the disconnect between the federal government in terms of inflation, uh, inflationary or measures that are in, uh, worsening inflation. There doesn't seem to be any cohesive approach to any of this stuff from our governments. Yeah, there isn't. I mean, they 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 are. Yeah, they're lucky when they get it right. So, but us voters, I mean, if we're not educated enough, I mean, this is a little it's bit complex of a, a, stuff. I mean, it's very alluded, complex. You've alluded some important points, so. First thing is that one of the reasons our housing market over the you know last fifty years or whatever has actually performed okay is because we rarely overbuild, we rarely create an oversupply. So remember back in the GFC, the the, the absolute wastelands were Southeast America, Spain, where they uh. literally in China at the moment where they're blowing up off uh, apartment blocks. They overbuilt. That's diabolical because yeah, yeah, overhang creates downward price pressure and hurts household balance sheets. Uh. We don't do that. But the flip side of that is is that we, we don't build houses until we have a shortage, and that creates problems. Now, the normal problems is, you know, rents going up, headship rates having to rise, I people moving in because of that, and it's a it's an inconvenience, it's a cycle. But at the moment, because of the nature of the pandemic and the underbuilding combined with the sudden opening of the borders, is it, I think you're exactly right. We're, we're in a particularly, in a rental crisis mode. I think we've started it, and we have finished it. And the, and the sting in the tail of this is a rents are the biggest component of the CPI. Yep. That's going to keep putting upward pressure on inflation, uh, measured inflation. So, look, how do we fix it? Well, you know, maybe this is when an ALP government goes and taps Stockland and Lendlease and whoever else on the back and says, we need you to build that suburb of 50 apartment blocks now. Now, look, I don't think that's a great way to do it forever, but we've got a particular point in history potentially. Anyway, the way. But, um, potentially some rent controls, right? Like That creates a long-term problem, though. Because you, what you do is you keep rents too low and then no one will build any future apartments. Yeah. yeah. What's your um, thoughts? I mean, you mentioned there around the, the idealistic world is that the economy supports everyone, which, you know, I'm on that boat as well. Um, but ultimately, the society we're building is it's not supporting everyone. There's real wage growth in some segments to the some part of the population. Do you think in, in some sense that we're becoming a little bit like America in that way, that inequality... Um, is he starting to get out of control? There's a lot of people who've done really well out of the last few years and continue to do well um, when you know real wages have gone back to 2010. Do you think that that's starting to become a real problem in Australia, similar to like 
Yeah, that's the idea of the working poor. Look, I think you, 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 we're going to look at that's going to be an issue in the short term. I think it's an issue emerging now. You can see in the wage data, the reason wages aren't moving up overall is because it's it's the people who are on enterprise bargainings and awards that are stuck for multiple years, and they tend to be the ones who are, you know, paid the least. And so, you know, the people who can negotiate their page year with their boss, they're getting 5% because, you know, it's a pretty easy case to make. Do you want me? My cost of living's gone up. And you can see that in the data. So, I mean, the irony of the labor market story is that in this particular shock, which it wasn't a wage-related inflation, it was a pandemic supply chain goods price inflation, is that the flexible labor markets, the ones all the left politicians, the Labor parties of the world don't like, like America and the UK, that they're too flexible, we need to give protections to workers. Well, they're the ones where the wages were able to adjust. And it's the regulated markets like Australia and Europe where we've tried to support workers, but their pay won't move. So their real wages have been killed. Right, there's that piece. The other piece was the nature of the fiscal stimulus in the pandemic. Unfortunately, although JobKeeper was the right idea, it's it's feathered a lot of nests, is a reality. I see this uh, shock to inequality in our country in the last few years. It's probably not it's probably not going to run its course for another few years, but it's not part of our culture. So I think we will get back on track. But it's this one-off episode. And the the funny thing is it's happened against the best interests. I, it's because we've tried to look after people with JobKeeper. It's because we've tried to protect the, the people with the regulated labor market. <laughs> it's the irony of that that it's caused it. It's why I don't think it's a permanent feature. But back to the original point, unfortunately, it looks like we're going to have the potential for a bit of a an underclass of working poor um, where they've got jobs but to pay the rent and to feed their children and all the things that in Australia we take for granted, it's going to take most of their money, if not all. And yeah, then leads to a, a stronger, more likely Labor government over the next couple of decades, you know, like let's say the next decade, and then policies like what we saw in super, and the, you know, they're going to get more sticky fingers to go into other policies like capital gains tax exemptions on investment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hearing again, and, you know, because... You know, that, that that problem was growing and has only got further worse. And now they, they're going to get in government and they're going to get majority and they're going to potentially get these policies through. Do you see that that'll be the story of the 2020s rather than what we saw last decade? Yeah, very much. So the super changes recently announced are going to raise $2 billion a year in extra revenue. My estimate of what they need to close the budget deficit, i.e. not to cut spending but to raise taxes, is... 40 billion. So they've done two of 40, they've got 38 to go. Hence, <laughs> why people are looking at that tax expenditure list as like a hit list of how they're going to raise taxes. Yeah. I'm all for fairness. I don't believe our society works unless it's fair. That doesn't mean everyone gets paid the same. That's not what I'm getting at. But so look, they, they, they are going to have to get to work. Um, it's all about it from an economy point of view is, is trying not to undermine the performance of the economy too much. But, you know, whether it's three million or four million, I think most people in Australia would say that's pretty fair enough, right? You're giving tax concessions to people who've got it pretty good. I mean, they, it's not kicking in for three years. It's actually a 20, 30 year asset, so you can change your plans. But I think you, with the spirit of what you're saying is right. I don't think it's the next decade. I think it's the next five years. But as always the case in Australian history, the ALP will overstep the mark, we'll kick them out, and the Liberals will come back and tidy it up. And, and that's the cycle, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Have you got a. Um and that property Dumbo for us. I know you, 
been a couple of years. I'm sure you've heard some other stories. Um, a story that you know something happens, ideally humorous. Uh, um, you caught me by surprise. I'd forgotten about this. Um, <laughs> I can't even remember what the last one was. I said, um, look, you know, I've I've been the economist. I like to think of the five or six properties I've bought in my life. I've got the cycle right. I actually did a little map and picked out that I'm not bad on the cycle. I probably made. I don't know, a hundred grand in total out of doing that. But my my family, my sisters, their children, I try to tell them that now, you know, it's not a good time, wait six months or this. And all they do for the last 25 years is I am just known as the guy who's negative property. But the, the history is that I have at least half my family members who have bought their house at the top of the property cycle, whether it was in 1989, 1999 or 2008, because they didn't listen to me. So there you go. Well, if they bought a good asset, it won't really matter. Exactly right. And that's, that's <laughs> the thing is that um, when you, you know, when you buy your own home, it's a 40-year asset um, and your life cycle's got to dominate your decision-making. But more and more Australians are in investing, investing in property. I believe it's a healthy thing. Not all of us want to own and we need that uh-huh. rental stock. I think we really need to get that going. And it does matter then. Because it is an investment and you do want to buy property when it's cheap, not when it's expensive. <laughs> well, it's funny though, but even then it, it comes down to asset selection. It, it, that actually trumps timing the market. You know, we've yep. modelled that out. But what what's in, what is interesting is that investors are typically late to the party. Yep. And and I had to laugh. Who was I listening to only uh, the other day anyway about investors starting to come into the market now? You know, when some people are calling it the bottom of the market, I'm not necessarily in agreement or disagreement of that. I'm just watching. But the very fact that so many investors are coming in apparently, according to this this latest data, um, I'm like, well, that that says to me it's... <laughs> it's yeah, it's got further to go. The, well, the, yeah, no, the bottom has passed because investors yeah. are usually late. But, but, but I'm I'm tongue in cheek there. Do not take that as a prediction. Right. Um, you know, because investors, you know, it's like all these people that are now actually, if prices did just rise slightly in in uh, in February in Sydney, you know, a lot of those people would have been ready to buy last year, and they're all waiting for the bottom of the market. It's like you know what, the bottom of the market hits before you realise it. So it's it's very difficult thing to time the market. But they do tend to pile in just before the peak. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like you don't get the call, Warren, though. Like, Uncle Warren, I'm not going to call him because he's just going to tell me not. I don't get the he's... call. I'm just a big bear on property, apparently, even though I've done more transactions than any of them. He's and also, now I'm a professional research guy, but um, there you go. But you know, He's going to talk me out of it. <laughs> yeah, you know what? My father told me this when I was a young boy. If they don't ask for your advice, don't give it. Yeah, <laughs> oh, so we have the same issue. Don't worry. The amount of people that that ask then don't take it, and then and then don't ask it. Then you just sit back and think, "Oh my god." Yeah. Well, <laughs> the easy decision is to be the facilitator, the positive person. Don't worry, pin your ears back, son. She'll be right. You know. Yeah. Well, be fine. another anecdote from a career of forecasting advice, going through to world's biggest hedge funds, fund managers, property investors, you name it, is when I give them something good, six months later. It was actually their idea, but I'll be remembered when they give them something bad. So you know, I can never win because it's their idea when I go. You know. Poor Uncle Warren. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> really appreciate so, your time, thanks Warren. Thanks for having me on the show, guys. I look forward to the next one. Excellent. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions 
at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.